On Wednesday, the 12th of January, 1977, 30-year-old Billy Hughes had been due to appear in court for a remand hearing in Chesterfield Magistrates Court. At around 7am that morning, Billy had used the phone in HMP Leicester Prison to call a woman called Teresa O'Dirty, who had not been best pleased to have heard from him. Billy spoke to Teresa casually over the phone, as if they were still on good terms, which had not been the case. On this call, he jokes with her that he'd tricked a, quote, directory inquiries lady into giving him Teresa's address. It was at this point on the phone call that Teresa had to remind him that their relationship was over, which is a reminder she repeated many times on the call, and that she wouldn't be at his trial to, quote, put a good word in for him as a character witness. And when she said that she wouldn't be a character witness, Billy absolutely lost it. It's reported that he started to threaten her, calling her obscene names, before hanging up the phone with a final threat, quote, you better lock your fucking doors. After hanging up, Billy went to work his shift in the prison kitchens as a dishwasher, and he had revenge on his mind. He worked his shift in a state of fury, and afterwards, he was taken back to his cell, which was where he managed to somehow hide a knife somewhere on his person, a knife they had stolen a good while beforehand. And as he had a court appearance that day, he was eventually moved to a taxi with two prison guards by the name of Donald Sprintle and Ken. Simmons. The prison guards did search Billy, but the knife was not found, and he was subsequently handcuffed to Simmons and loaded into the car. The driver of the taxi, David Reynolds, pulled out of the prison drive and onto the road. The beginning of the ride had been normal, with Billy sitting obediently and even partaking in small talk with the officers as they made their way to Chesterfield, a drive that should only have taken about an hour. The building behind me is the old Chesterfield Magistrates Court, in which Billy Hughes was supposed to be taken to on that Dead. though this apparent peace would not last. At some point between junctions 25 and 26 on the M1, which is a primary motorway that connects London to Leeds, Billy asked the guards to stop the car so that he could relieve himself on the side of the road, to which they agreed to let him do. And when he was out of the car and had his handcuffs removed for a moment as he pretended to relieve himself, he took the knife out of its hiding place and put it into a better place that he could quickly reach. He then finished going to the toilet and allowed himself to be handcuffed to Simmons again before being put back in the taxi. Now, as a side note, I have absolutely no idea where exactly Billy had stored that knife, and honestly... I'm not sure I want to know either. A few minutes after they had set off back on the drive to Chesterfield, Billy made his move. He attacked Simmons and Sprintle, severely wounding their necks before turning the knife to the driver, who had now been panicking. Reynolds, the driver, drove the taxi along the A617 with a knife pointed at him before Billy decided it was enough. Billy forced Reynolds and the two wounded officers out of the vehicle before getting behind the wheel. He only made it a short distance from the three men that he had abandoned before crashing the car, hitting a wall along the B5057 and making a run for it on foot. He trudged through the snow and cold through the Beely Moor, searching for anything that could help him. The abandoned vehicle would be found an hour later, located not too far from the road near Chatsworth House. Billy then walks an estimated 4.2 kilometres or 2.6 miles through these bad snowy conditions on foot until he came across a small group of houses, one of which had been a family home by the name of Pottery Cottage the residents of the Moran family. It was in the fields behind us, which is Billy Moore, that Billy Hughes would have walked across on that fateful day was those buildings in the background, which is Pottery Cottage. Billy approached the Pottery Cottage with the intent to do whatever he needed to do 
to get assistance. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. William Billy Thomas Hughes was born on Thursday the 8th of August 1946 in Preston, Lancashire. He was one of six children born to parents Mary and Thomas Hughes. From a young age, Billy did poorly at school and struggled with antisocial behaviours. And also from a young age, he became involved in committing petty crimes, with his first legal charge of burglary being brought against him when he was just 14 years old. At the age of 15, Billy left school and he struggled to hold down a job for any notable period of time. All of these issues escalated until Billy found himself first in an approved school before being moved to a Borstal school. According to Wikipedia, an approved school is a type of residential institution in the United Kingdom in which young people could be sent to by a court, usually for committing offences, but sometimes because they were deemed to be beyond parental control. And a Borstal school is a type of youth detention centre in the United Kingdom and in several member states of the Commonwealth and the Republic of Ireland. Borstal schools are run by HM Prison Service and were in to reform young offenders. Not too much is known about Billy's life at these schools, or really much about his life as a young adult. But what we do know is that in 1971, Billy married a woman by the name of Jean Naden. Jean had been a single mother with one child and a native of Blackpool. The couple had originally moved to a property near the Golden Mile in Blackpool, and they had a daughter together, born on the 9th of August 1972. But the young family found themselves having to move around a lot due to Billy's tendency to refuse to pay rent. And this had an obvious strain on the relationship which began to slowly deteriorate and ultimately grew to be violently abusive and riddled with infidelity. In 1973, Billy was actually sent to jail for three and a half years for four counts of assault, causing bodily harm for an assault on two police officers. The police officers had stopped his car and had discovered various stashes of drugs in the car's boots. He would be released from jail in early 1976. And after being released in March of 1976, Billy proceeded proceeded to abandon his wife Jean and his daughter to move to Chesterfield, Derbyshire, with his girlfriend at the time, who was a woman by the name of Teresa O'Dirty, the same Teresa we mentioned earlier. In the evening hours of Saturday the 21st of August 1976, Billy attacked a young couple in a local park. He first beat the man with a brick to knock him unconscious, before dragging his partner away towards a riverbed where he raped her at knife points before escaping into the night. It had been due to an anonymous tip that the police were led to Billy, who was arrested for the assault and rape. On Friday the 27th of August 1976, Billy was imprisoned at HMP Leicester Prison. Now, despite his violent nature and past issues, he was only listed as a Category B inmate. According to Wikipedia, this class is made up of, quote, those who do not require maximum security, but for whom escape still needs to be made very difficult. The ranking system itself is made up of four categories, with Category A being the most dangerous inmates, all the way down to Category D, being those who can be trusted not to 
tried to escape and are kept in an open prison. When Billy came across the Pottery Cottage on that fateful Wednesday on the 12th of January 1977, only two people had been home, 72-year-old Arthur Minton and his wife, 67-year-old Amy Minton. They'd gotten married in June of 1931, and together they had two daughters, Barbara and Gillian. After Arthur had retired, the Mintons had run a grocery store in Accox Green, which they ended up selling before moving into Pottery Cottage with their 38-year-old daughter, Gillian Moran, and her 41-year-old husband, Richard Moran. Richard Moran's life had begun in Kilmorgany Island, where he had been born to a single mother whose name is not known. He was fostered by a local family to which he remained close with throughout his life. At the age of 14, he left school and started work as a labourer before voluntarily enlisting in the Irish army. It's unclear how long he served for, but what we do know is that after he left service, he moved with his foster sister Margaret to Birmingham in England. There, he worked in factories and focused his time on studying during his evenings, eventually moving on to work as a sales clerk for a building company. It had been when he was working as a sales clerk for the building company that he had met Gillian. Gillian had enrolled in a secretarial college after leaving school, eventually getting a job as a typist and a delivery driver. And through these jobs, she met Richard, who she ended up becoming engaged to in the fall of the same year that they had met. On the 21st of September 1959, Gillian and Richard got married, and they soon learned that they were unable to have a biological child together, so they decided to adopt a baby girl. On the 14th of April 1967, the adoption was finalised, and they brought their daughter, Sarah, home. Sarah Moran had been born on the 20th of September 1966 as Sarah Bridget, though her surname had been changed to Moran after her adoption to the Morans had been completed. And Sarah excelled at her local primary school. By the time 1977 came around, Richard had been working as a sales director for a local plastic manufacturing company by the name of Brett Plastics, now Brett Martin. Gillian had been working as a secretary for an accounting firm, and both Amy and Arthur had been retired. However, Amy did occasionally do odd cleaning jobs for their neighbours if money was slow. On that January day, as we touched on, only Arthur Minton and Amy Minton had been home at Pottery Cottage. Sarah had been at school when Billy came across the family home, with both Richard and Gillian being at work. After Billy had assessed the situation before him, he decided that it was, quote, good enough, and began looking around the outside of the house. He went past a shed on the property and located two axes, which he picked up and took with him. Billy then entered Pottery Cottage through the back door of the house, which had been unlocked, and quickly encountered Arthur and Amy. He blatantly and bluntly explained to Arthur and Amy that he was on the run from the police, and that he had already stabbed two prison officers. Billy then informed them that he needed to lay low until nightfall, and that if they cooperated with him, then they wouldn't be hurt. And to ensure their safety, the couple went along with his demands, hoping that if they just kept quiet and out of Billy's way, then they'd make it out okay. The situation in Pottery Cottage remained like this for several hours, up until 3pm that afternoon, which was when Gillian arrived back home from work. When Gillian, also known as Jill, opened the front door, she was greeted by Billy, who had been threatening the lives of her parents. Billy explained the situation to her, just as he had done with her parents, and told her to comply for the safety of herself and for the safety of her family. Billy was described as being very calm and almost friendly with the family at this point. He sat and chatted with everyone, as if he wasn't currently holding them hostage. Gillian would later state that she had swallowed her fear and did all that she could to make Billy happy so that he wouldn't be inclined to hurt anyone. About 30 minutes later, at around 3.30pm, Sarah came home from school, and in an attempt to not scare the young girl, Jill explained to her daughter Sarah that Billy had been driving down the road and had gotten his car stuck. She told Sarah that he was going to stay for a bit until he could get help, and Sarah, being the 10-year-old girl that she was, 
Rose thought nothing more of it, and sat down to work on a sewing project that she had been working on in the adjoining annex. As the hours ticked on by, Billy slowly began to become more and more agitated. You see, Billy was waiting for Richard to get back, Jill's husband and Sarah's father, and he was growing very impatient. Finally, at around 6pm that evening, Richard arrived at Pottery Cottage after getting home from work to find Billy holding a knife to his wife, Jill's throat. Billy again explained his reasoning for his intrusion and demanded that Richard cooperate. Amy stood nearby to Billy as this happened, trying to calm Billy down, but it was then that Billy had a change of heart, forcing Richard to the floor. He bound his arms and legs with a piece of cord that he'd ripped from a nearby hoover and some washing line. Billy then proceeded to do the same to Amy and Jill as Sarah and her grandfather Arthur ran into the main room where the commotion had been taking place from the adjoining annex, which was where Sarah had been doing her sewing project. Sarah watched on, terrified yelling, quote, "'Don't you hurt my mummy and daddy. Don't you dare.'" Billy then turned to Arthur and threw him to the ground, before dragging him to a nearby armchair. He forced 72-year-old Arthur Minton into the chair and tied him to it. He then proceeded to gag all five of the family members before separating them into different rooms of the house. He isolated 10-year-old Sarah in her grandparents' bedroom, Amy in Sarah's bedroom, Gillian in her and Richard's bedroom, Richard in a spare guest bedroom, and left Arthur in the downstairs living room tied to the armchair. Jill would later state that she could hear loud sounds coming from the living room, and she would only later realise that the sounds she heard had been that of her father being beaten by Billy. It was likely that, in that moment, Billy killed Arthur, unbeknownst to the rest of the family in the house. After what must have seemed like a millennia had passed, Billy went upstairs with cups of tea for his hostages. Jill stated that Billy held the teacup for her as she drank, and once she'd finished her cup of tea, he sexually assaulted her, after which Billy went to the bedroom located next to hers, which had been the guest bedroom that Richard was trapped in. The bedroom had two single beds in it, and Billy sat on one of them and talked to Richard. Jill would later describe their conversation as being one, quote, like he'd met him in a pub. She later recounted the tone of it to have been casual from Billy as he told Richard of the crimes he'd committed, almost bragging as if he'd been proud of them. That night passed in slow, tense hours as the family waited, separated to see what was in store for them in the coming hours. It must be noted that, tragically, at some point during these late-night hours, Billy went into Arthur and Amy's bedroom where 10-year-old Sarah had been kept held hostage, and he murdered her. He killed her so quietly that nobody heard anything, and therefore nobody knew that anything had happened to her. And before the sun rose the next morning, both 72-year-old Arthur Minton and 10-year-old Sarah Moran had been murdered, and their family had absolutely no idea. On the morning of Tuesday the 13th of January 1977, Chesterfield had been coated in a thick layer of snow. The town had received the heaviest snowfall on record in the past 50 years, and several roads were closed, both due to the snow already on the ground, and due to the further snow anticipated by daily forecasts. The blizzard-like conditions were set to continue through that day, and this meant that the police search for Billy Hughes had been considerably harder than before, but not halted. As the local police scrambled to figure out what to do, Billy spent his morning with Jill. At around 7.30am that morning, council workers arrived at Pottery Cottage to empty the septic tank, a visit that the family had been expecting for a while. When the workers arrived, Billy urged Jill to go out and handle them, but importantly to quote, act normal, or else her family would see the consequences. Jill obeyed Billy's command, scared for the lives of her loved ones. She noted that as she came downstairs to deal with the council workers, that her father had still been on the armchair, though he'd been covered in a suede coat. Jill would later state, quote, "...he wasn't moving. 
I couldn't see if he was injured or bleeding. When Billy noticed her prolonging looks, he reassured her, claiming that her father, Arthur, had still been asleep and was fine, and Jill clutched onto that hope and carried on. After the council workers had left the property, Billy forced Jill to call in sick to work and to inform Sarah's school that she was ill. That was obviously not the case, but Jill was terrified. Billy also forced Richard to call in sick to work. Jill had noticed the prolonged silence from her 10-year-old daughter, Sarah, and begged Billy to let her go speak with her. Billy, though, denied her request, but assured her that Sarah was still alive. And, well, we know now that this statement was a blatant lie, and Jill had no idea. She clung to the promise that Sarah was okay, just as she had done with the promise about her father, and carried on following Billy's orders, desperate to keep him as happy as possible. Billy, that morning, decided that he needed a few things from town, and so decided to send Jill to go and get them. He ordered her to drive to town to check for roadblocks, and to pick up some newspapers and cigarettes for him. Before letting her get in the car, Billy stopped her at the door and reminded her, quote, I've got your family here, Jill don't do anything stupid. Jill did just as she was told and returned with the information about the roadblocks and the items that Billy had asked for. She noted that at this point, Arthur had no longer been on the armchair in the living room. And when she asked Billy about it, he said that he'd taken him to another room in the house and locked him in. That afternoon, Billy ordered Jill to make a meal for everyone. And when the food was done, Billy brought Richard and Amy down from their bedrooms before taking plates of food to the rooms where he claimed to have been keeping Sarah and Arthur. Before Billy could leave the kitchen, Jill stopped him. You see, Sarah had been, understandably, a particular child and had a special comfort towel that she tended to keep with her and sleep with, alongside a grey elephant plushie that she also slept with. Those two items had been consistent and constant nighttime buddies for Sarah ever since she was a baby. Jill pointed out that Sarah's comfort towel had still been in the kitchen and asked Billy why he hadn't been asked by Sarah to get it for her. Billy told Jill that she quote, just hadn't asked, and offered to take them to her, still forbidding Jill to go into the bedroom to see her daughter. He reassured the three hostages that he intended to leave that evening before requesting that they play some cards with him. The four of them sat around the table and played a few games of gin rummy and a new game that Billy taught them. Later that evening, Billy actually left the cottage twice. The first time had been with Jill and Richard to test drive Richard's car, a Chrysler 180, that Billy had planned to take with him as a getaway vehicle. The second time that Billy had left, Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba had just been him and Jill, and they had driven to Sutton in Ashfields in the early hours of the morning going into day three. Billy and Jill had gone to Sutton in Ashfield to get some money from someone who he'd committed a burglary with, as it was apparently owed to him, though that was not true. Due to the weather conditions, Billy decided to stay another night in the cottage, and Jill, again, begged to see her daughter, explaining to Billy that the 10-year-old must be terrified. Billy snapped at Jill, telling her no. She would later state, quote, he became very tense, I didn't mention it again because he frightened me and I wanted to keep him happy. As the Minton and Moran families were living day two in an ordeal from their deepest and darkest nightmares, the police had been doing all that they could in order to find Billy Hughes. They'd scraped together all of the manpower that they could at the time, considering the weather conditions, and were still as on the hunt as they could be. By the 13th of January, there had been over 200 police officers and two British Army helicopters deployed to aid in the search. Unfortunately, though, 
the two helicopters had been quickly grounded due to the blizzard-like conditions. The search itself had still been focused around the region in which Billy had originally crashed the taxi in the general vicinity of the B5057 and the A6 road. Eventually, it became nearly impossible to track Billy and the search was dampened, and a theory began to emerge that Billy could be somewhere holding up in a local household. Something that was horrifyingly unfortunate was that Pottery Cottage had been a mere 200 metres north of the official search radius, and had the property been a little further south, the likelihood that the ordeal would have ended on this day was very high. The search efforts were officially called off in the early evening of the 13th due to the weather conditions worsening even more. The morning paper on Friday the 14th of January 1977, day three, would heavily feature the theory that Billy had been holding up in a local home alongside the update given to the press about the police's search efforts. A warning was issued to the community to keep an eye out for Billy and to keep safe, keep their doors locked and to take other precautions. Inside Pottery Cottage, the terror continued. In the morning, Jill was forced to make tea and toast for everyone. Servings were once again taken to the rooms where Billy claimed Arthur and Sarah had been in order to keep up the appearance that they had still been alive. After breakfast, Billy told Richard and Jill that he needed more things for his escape and some essentials for going on the run. He sent them on a shopping trip, asking them to pick up some food, fuel, cigarettes and a camping stove for him to have. Billy gave them 25 Great British pounds that he'd stolen from them the day before and sent them on their way, threatening to kill the rest of their family if they didn't return. But before they left, he made one further request, quote, pick up a nice gift for Sarah. And if that doesn't show just how truly evil Billy is or was, I... I don't know what will. He knew that Sarah was not alive. He knew what he'd done to Sarah, and yet he still told Sarah's parents to go pick up a nice gift for her, using money that he'd stolen from them. It makes the hairs on my neck stand up. It, it gives me goosebumps just to think about just how evil he is. During the drive to the shops, Richard asked Jill if they should try to run. Scared for the lives of their daughter and Jill's parents, she declined. The couple went on to buy the requested items and returned to the house, scared, defeated, and very close to a nervous breakdown. That afternoon, Billy spent most of his time preparing to make a run for it. He'd stopped to make Jill prepare lunch and took plates for himself and two fake plates for Arthur and Sarah, who by this point had both been dead for over 24 hours. Billy lied to the three remaining hostages Amy, Richard and Jill, that he had conversations with Sarah and Arthur to try to calm Jill's nerves. At around 6pm, Billy claims to the hostages that he was almost ready to go, but that he needed money. He asked Richard if there was any money stored at his place of work, and when Richard confirmed that there was, Billy decided that he wanted it. Billy forced Richard and Jill into the car again, making them drive over to Richard's workplace. When they arrived, it had been well past closing time, and the building had been empty. The three of them entered the building, and Billy looted around 210 Great British pounds, or 258 US dollars, which is now worth 1,660 Great British pounds, or 2,043 US dollars, before having Jill and Richard drive him back to Pottery Cottage. When they got back to the house, Billy tied Richard back up before loading all of his supplies into the car. He declared to the remaining family members that he was ready to leave, though he also revealed that he was taking Jill with him, but that she would be released safely when they had been a good distance 
from the house. Billy started the car and began to drive, slowly leading Jill away from her two loved ones and the remains of two others. Billy drove for a while before he had an evil change of heart. He turned the car back around and headed back to Pottery Cottage, telling Jill that he'd forgotten a map in the home. Billy stopped outside of the cottage and ran back inside. He went into the kitchen, grabbed a knife and went to the bedrooms in which he had been keeping Amy and Richard. Billy then stabbed both Richard and Amy, leaving them to die before returning to the car where Jill had been waiting as if nothing had ever happened. Jill was now the only surviving member of her immediate family and she had absolutely no idea. She sat patiently and obediently in the car as her loved ones were killed, truly believing that by doing so, she was saving their lives. When Billy returned to the car, it wouldn't start and Billy panicked, outraged that the vehicle wouldn't start when he was, in his mind, so close to being free. He decided to drag Jill out of the car and ordered her to go ask a neighbour for help. Jill approached her neighbour's home. By this point, she was exhausted, cold, and tipping over the edge of a nervous breakdown that had been looming over her for the past 50 or so hours. Her neighbours, whose names we've changed for the purposes of identity protection, so we'll be calling them Edward and Sophie Taylor or the Taylors, opens their front door to see a terrified Jill with a strange man looming a ways behind her. They immediately knew that something had been very wrong. Jill, worn down and finally breaking down, blurted out, quote, Edward, for God's sake, help us. At this point, several things happened at once. Billy grabbed Jill and pulled her away from her neighbour's doorstep and back towards the car, scolding her for alerting them to her situation. The tailors, who had no phone at home, dashed to their car to drive to a nearby phone box to call for the police. And lastly, and most horrifically, Jill's attention was drawn back to her family home, Pottery Cottage, where her mother, Amy, was slowly staggering towards them, badly injured and covered in her own blood. She had managed to climb out of a window that Billy had left open, and she attempted to make her way to Jill, who later said, quote, I couldn't believe it. She staggered very slowly towards the car. I could see Mum lying on her back in the snow. I was petrified. I was at my wit's end. Billy jerked Jill back away from the car, telling her they'd have to run. And then they found themselves at the home of another neighbour pretty quickly, which was where Billy forced Jill to ask this neighbour for help in getting their car started. This neighbour, whose name has also been changed for the purposes of identity protection, who we'll call James Hall, was a mechanic and would know how to get the car started. However, he quickly recognised that Jill was being held hostage. For Jill's safety, James Hall played dumb and complied, but purposefully took much longer to get things sorted than he needed, hoping that he could delay everything long enough so that help could arrive. As he did this, James Hall's wife, who we'll call Charlotte Hall, had been phoning for the police. James Hall helped by towing the car for a short distance to get the engine going, which had been successful. And the car, driven by Billy with Jill in the passenger seat, sped away west towards Baslow. As Billy and Jill sped away, the police arrived at Pottery Cottage. The calls from the tailors resulted in several police cars surrounding the home, taking strategic angles on the property to ensure that nobody could get in or out unnoticed. At 9pm that evening, even more officers arrived on the scene to ensure full coverage of the area. The first body that the authorities came across had been that of Amy Minton. She'd been found in the garden laying face up partially covered by the ongoing snowfall. Inside Pottery Cottage, the police found absolute carnage. All of the other members of the Minton and Moran families were found dead, all from the same causes, shock and hemorrhaging due to multiple stab wounds sustained to their throats and chests. Richard was found in the cottage face down on the stair landing, still bound. Sarah was found laying in the fetal position on the floor of her grandparents' bedroom where she'd been kept, and Arthur was found downstairs, still bound and hidden under a white coat. Billy had only just evaded the police, as they had arrived mere minutes after the car had taken off towards Baslow. However, Billy's lead on the police wouldn't last long. 
The car was quickly spotted racing down the A619 and the police were able to catch up to them without much of a delay. Several police cars chased the vehicle, desperately trying to get the car to stop safely. One source states, quote, Numerous police cars soon caught up with the vehicle and thus began a high-speed multiple-car chase across Derbyshire via Chapel on the Frith and which ultimately progressed into Cheshire. The police had been extremely aware that Billy had already crashed one vehicle and they were very concerned that a high-speed crash would kill Jill, resulting in the total and complete loss of the Minton and Moran families. However, after a while of chasing Billy, the police realised that they had no other choice but to physically intercept the car. An unmarked Morris Marina police car swerved in front of the Chrysler that Billy had been driving, blocking the car's path and causing it to swerve and crash into the barrier wall on the side of the road. The two officers inside the Morris Marina exited their vehicle to run towards the Chrysler, though it had been at that point that they saw that Billy had been holding an axe to Jill's throat, threatening to murder her if they came too close to the car. Billy then dragged Jill from the now-crashed vehicle and continued to threaten the police officers with Jill's life. He demanded that the police surrendered their car to him so that he could leave, and in order to save Jill's life, they did surrender their car. Billy crammed Jill into the vehicle before speeding off. At around 10pm that evening, the police chase had evolved into a standoff. A single-decker Crossfield bus had been parked across the road on a road going into Renau in an attempt to stop Billy's mad chase. When he had attempted to swerve to miss the bus, he lost control of the car, sending it spinning across the road before hitting a curb, a street sign, and then into a dry stone wall. The vehicle was almost immediately surrounded by law enforcement as Billy became irate once again. He held the axe above Jill's head, threatening to kill her once more if the car was approached by the police. At this point, the vehicle had been facing towards Macclesfield, pointing towards a gap in the police car circle, and Billy realised that if he was fast, he could speed away to freedom once again. But before this could happen, firearms officers filled the gap in the police car circle. Chief Inspector Peter Howes began hostage negotiations with Billy. He offered various other options other than killing Jill. At one point, even offering himself up as a hostage instead. A getaway vehicle was provided, but Jill was paralysed with fear and refused to move. After nearly 50 minutes of negotiations, Billy had grown tired of it. He yelled, quote, Right, your time's up. He swung the axe towards Jill's head, but the swing didn't connect. Chief Inspector Peter Howells managed to be fast enough to jump through the back window of the car, partly stopping the swing. Jill's forehead was cut by the weapon, but her life had been spared. As this was happening, firearms officer Frank Pell fired one shot through the now shattered back window of the car, hitting Billy in the head. However, in a strange twist, the bullet deflected off of Billy's skull, injuring him, but not killing him. This instance of a tangential shot to the head is not as rare as one might think. A medical study from 2018 described various head wounds pertaining to gunshots and bullet ricochet. Variables such as the type of bullet, type of firearm, distance from the gun to the head, the angle of the shot, the thickness of the person's skull, and other even smaller factors play a big part into whether this kind of shot occurs. Regardless of the technicalities, Billy was very much still alive and was now even more enraged. Billy hits a Chief Inspector Peter with the axe once again before biting him. He then continued to try to hit Jill with the axe as three more rounds were fired into the car by the officers outside. The last of these three rounds were fired by Alan Nichols, and it was the shots that finally killed Billy. It entered through his shoulder and tore through his aorta, causing him to bleed out. Billy's body slumped into Jill's lap. The man who had been terrorising her and the one she loved for the past three days was finally gone. She had lost her husband, daughter, both of her parents, and almost lost her own life, but she had survived, though 
she was now alone. The immediate aftermath of the Pottery Cottage murders hadn't brought much comfort to Jill, as now she was not only dealing with a barrage of police interviews, she also had been informed that all of her immediate family had been killed. Jill wasn't informed of their deaths until after she'd been treated for the injuries she had sustained from Billy. A joint funeral service for Richard and Sarah Moran and Arthur and Amy Minton was held at Brimington Cemetery in Chesterfield on Friday the 21st of January 1977, with over 100 mourners attending the service. On the same day as the joint funeral, January 21st, 1977, Teresa O'Dirty, who had been Billy's ex-girlfriend, was interviewed and spoke about her former relationship with Billy. In the interview, she said, quote, All I can say is I wish to God it had been me and not that family, and I really mean that. And when it came to the burial of Billy, it caused quite a stir, quite the issue within the local community. Many people felt that he should be buried at the prison along with inmates who'd been executed, but the Home Office planned to bury him in Chesterfield in Boythorpe Cemetery on the 25th of January, though this didn't happen. Townspeople protested, saying that if he was buried in that cemetery, then they would dig him up and destroy his corpse. Several townsfolk even went and refilled the grave that had been dug up for Billy in the cemetery. They also chained the cemetery gates shut and covered them with a board that stated their protest, telling the Home Office to take his corpse elsewhere, quote, or else. These protests ultimately resulted in Billy's remains being cremated, though his service was still held in the same place as the service held for the families he'd killed in cold blood. On Monday the 14th of February 1977, Jill Moran sold the exclusive rights of her story to the Daily Mail, and she was interviewed by Linda Lee Potter. The story was published in eight parts, and it would be the last time she would ever publicly speak about what happened to her during those 55 horrific hours. Billy's shooting also marked the first time an officer from Derbyshire Constabulary had shot a suspect fatally, and the first time that British police had shot and killed an escaped, dangerous, and armed prisoner. On Thursday the 10th of March 1977, Chief Inspector of the Prison Service, Gordon Fowler, released a 57-page report regarding the failure of the system to keep Billy in custody. The report the report detailed the failures of the management of Leicester Prison and of the search efforts after the escape. The report also mentioned the failure of those responsible for not correctly assessing how dangerous Billy had the potential to be, which led him to being transported without an adequate level of security. Gordon Fowler, in his report, called for better communication between those responsible for prisoners and their transfers, as well as for mandatory strip searches of all prisoners who were about to be transferred. An excerpt of this report, now known as the Fowler Report, states, quote, The information sent to the prison by the police and other agencies while Billy Hughes was on remand was not enough to identify him as a person prone to extreme violence or as a potentially dangerous psychopath. In total, 17 recommendations were going to be put into motion, effective immediately following the publication of the report. And upon further review, after the release of the file report, eight more recommendations were implemented. No immediate action was taken against any employees, as the failures were seen to have been those of the system, not just of one or two specific people. The Derbyshire Constabulary were also heavily criticised for not focusing the search in a more widespread area. The organisation had marks that all residents outside of their range, including Pottery Cottage, were not worth searching quotes, all outward appearances of the cottages were occupied by their usual residents and life was continuing normally. For his bravery and fast action, Chief Inspector Peter Howes was eventually awarded the Queen's commendation for brave conduct. On Wednesday the 27th of April 1977, the official coroner's inquest took place in Trafterfield. The officers involved directly within the shooting of Billy testified that he had been too irate and quote frenzied to have been negotiated with any further. Peter Howes stated that Jill quotes would not have been alive today if we had not taken the course of action we did. The cause of death for Sarah Moran, Richard Moran, Amy Minton and Arthur Minton 
were all confirmed to have been the result of multiple stab wounds. It was also confirmed by Home Office pathologist Dr. Alan Usher that Billy's official cause of death was due to gunshot wounds. The killing of Billy was unanimously declared as justifiable homicide. Now, in 1982, YTV began working on a film to be titled The Pottery Cottage Murder, However, the production was cancelled in 1983 due to public backlash. In December of 1978, Jill got remarried to a man by the name of Jim Mulqueen. Jim had been a cousin of Richard's, and two years after they had gotten married, they had a daughter together. Unfortunately, as one would expect, the trauma of those three days haunted Jill's new marriage. In December of 1987, Jim Mulqueen would be arrested after threatening a man with a shotgun. He had begun drinking heavily in the years prior, citing the, quote, emotional strain that Jill's trauma had put onto him in their relationship as the reason why. He was jailed for two years for the incident. In 2009, Alan Nichols, who was the officer who shot Billy, passed away. He'd be awarded the Derbyshire Police Federation Bravery Award in 2017, around eight years after his death. The murders in Pottery Cottage were undoubtedly heartbreaking and tragically preventable. Had the system required a tighter leash on transferring prisoners, or even taken the time to communicate potential dangers regarding the prisoner, the Morans and Mintons would have been able to go about those three days and the rest of their lives as normal. However, However, a string of systematic failures and a lack of precautions cost the lives of four out of five family members, and the suffering of several people who were also injured by Billy on his rampage. New precautions and requirements that would be implemented after this case would result in countless lives being saved and protected, but it would be written in blood at the cost of four innocent lives. I sincerely hope that for the remainder of Jill's life, it is as peaceful and fulfilling as it could be. And that's everything I have for you in this case. If you want to see more true crime videos just like this one, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and click that bell icon to be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. Give this video a thumbs up to show YouTube that you like this kind of content. And with all that being said, I will see you in the next case.